0: By the time that people are talking about famine or going towards issuing that declaration or exploring it, many people have already died before you get to that point.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Famine means something very specific to the United Nations and broader international humanitarian community. It does not just mean lack of food. Rather, it is a quantitative threshold on the extreme end of a food security spectrum. For a famine to be declared, three measurable conditions must be met. First, at least 20% of the population must be starving because of extreme food shortages. Second, 30% of children under the age of five must be experiencing acute malnutrition, which can be measured by a condition known as wasting. Finally, the mortality rate must be double the average, which for adults means two deaths per 10,000 people a day, and for children means four deaths per 10,000 people per day. This means that by the time a famine is declared, people are already dying in massive numbers. The UN has not declared a famine in Gaza, not yet at least. But the World Food Program has said there are, quote, pockets of famine in Gaza. In December, the UN released its most comprehensive assessment of food security there and estimated that over half a million people are facing catastrophic levels of food insecurity. For comparison's sake, in the entire rest of the world, there are an estimated 129,000 people facing similarly catastrophic levels of food insecurity. My guest today, Jada Doyen McKenna, is the CEO of Mercy Corps, a large international humanitarian NGO that has long had a presence in Gaza. We discuss the food security landscape and the prospect of famine, and then have an in-depth discussion about the complex process of getting even limited humanitarian aid into Gaza. We also discuss the ongoing work of Mercy Corps in Gaza today. This conversation, I think, does a really good job of explaining the complexities of a humanitarian relief operation in the midst of this conflict, for which at time of recording, there is still no end in sight. As always, please reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. You can use the contact button at globaldispatches.org to get in touch with me. I read all your emails. I respond to all of your emails. Thank you again for your insights and suggestions. Now here is my conversation with Jada Doyen McKenna, CEO of Mercy Corps. So, Jada, the last time you and I spoke was September 2022, and you had just returned from Somalia, which was on the brink of famine. Back then, the challenge to avert the famine was more or less to get people and policymakers to pay attention. This was a crisis that was off the radar of key donors like the United States and Europe. So here we are in January 2024, and the Gaza crisis is both getting a huge amount of attention and there is a catastrophic food crisis. How do you make sense of that?
0: There truly is no way to make sense of the fact that this is basically a man-made, conflict-driven hunger catastrophe that is veering toward famine while the world watches. And I think what's difficult for the world to understand is people have an image of famine in their mind, of a very dusty place, of a prolonged hunger situation where people are emaciated and have lost a lot of weight. And that's not what this hunger catastrophe looks for because it is a sudden onset rapid development. And what's truly shocking, and I don't think we've done a good job of communicating this, is that four out of five people facing famine globally right now, so about 700,000 are located in Gaza. The other thing that I think people don't understand is they don't understand the dire conditions in which these people are suffering in terms of not having access to supplies, not being able to go anywhere for help. I think it's just hard to really imagine how someone's life could change that quickly and how people could be on the edge of famine in this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just have to imagine for like humanitarian actors like Mercy Corps and your other colleagues at World Food Program and, and other international NGOs. I mean, you're used to food crises that do not look like this. I mean, here you have, I, I think it was Cindy McCain, the executive director of the World Food Program said the other day, you know, we have people that are starving just like a couple miles from trucks filled with food. They just can't cross in. And this is like totally different, you know, in my 20 years of covering humanitarian crises, I just have not seen something like this. Typically, you know, famines are born of lack of attention. People are starving for lack of attention because international policymakers, you know, it's far from the radar, but here you are a hot conflict and it's still just such an acute crisis.
0: Right. When people think of conflict, they don't think of a conflict that is happening under a siege. So in gaza the people are under constant threat from bombardment they're under total siege so there's been complete telecommunications blackouts no entrance of food water and in other situations people had places where they could flee in gaza there is no safe zone at all and there is nowhere to escape to so it's not a situation that people can just move to that area to get food or they can go to a neighboring country They they just have no place to go from a place that's being truly cut off from everything.
1: So because Gaza is so cut off, presumably it's kind of hard to get information about the food security situation inside Gaza to Humanitarians such as yourself, like how is it that you and the World Food Program and other agencies are able to make assessments of what the food security crisis looks like inside Gaza?
0: So we know what's not getting in. So that that's one way of seeing that and and knowing that, like normal commerce goes in and out of these same checkpoints, right? So we know what's not getting in. We also, you know, have staff on the ground. That are able, so when we are able to get in touch with them, that are able to say, tell the stories of their families. Like I have colleagues who talk about spending most of the day looking for food, looking for places where there's food to buy. And we also have people talking about what it's like in stores and what it's not like. There are some organizations too that are still operational inside of Gaza, like World Central Kitchen is doing amazing work feeding people. And we're getting reports back from all of those things. The UN has a, the, the whole system of monitoring this and, and categorizing it. They have this very complex, multi-level data systems using all kinds of technology. I, I can't pretend to explain all those different pieces, but I can tell you how it's apparent to us that there is a crisis without all of the actual numbers and particular data points that the UN is collecting.
1: So, you know, if present trends continue, the World Food Program has been warning of of a looming famine and also is suggesting that pockets of famine probably already exist within Gaza today. You know, the term famine is something I think that is sort of widely known, but it has a very technical definition in United Nations and humanitarian circles, could you just explain what we mean when we say famine in this context? Because it's not just a lack of food, it means something else.
0: It does. As you stated, there are very like technical definitions behind this, but I think what's most important to understand is that by the time that people are talking about famine or going towards issuing that declaration or exploring it, many people have already died before you get to that point. I know the wording is quite important and famine turns on these emotions or it turns on the sense, the dire sense of things. But what we need to know in this context is that people are dying and it's not just the access to food, it's the access to clean water, and it's the secondary effects of being deprived of those things. So on top of people dying from hunger, you're also seeing people die from very treatable infections because of the lack of clean water, because of the lack of medical supplies. You're seeing children especially dying of diarrheal diseases, also driven by lack of clean water, when you're depleted nutritionally, your body has less means to fight this off, in addition then to the bombardments and also the stampedes for food when there is some food. So you're seeing people dying of hunger, but also of the secondary effects of hunger in terms of other illnesses and other situations that are prone for people.
1: So there is some aid getting into Gaza. It's a trickle compared to the needs. But nonetheless, I'm really interested to learn from you. Just like the logistics, how is it that aid, if it gets to Gaza, gets to Gaza? Where does it start and where does it end up and how does it go from point A to point B?
0: So it's important to remember that before the war, Just to get basic goods and services into Gaza, an average of 500 trucks would enter Gaza per day. Right now, we have two main entry points, the Raqqa crossing on the border in Egypt and another one through Israel for limited purposes. Right now, what we're seeing are thousands of commercial and humanitarian aid trucks are lined up just across the border in Egypt, often for several weeks at a time with an average of only 130 trucks making it through each day. So the process to allow aid in these trucks to cross the border is lengthy and very bureaucratic. So even before this crisis, there has always been a list of items not allowed inside Gaza, and that's known as a dual-use items list. So that's a list that supposedly includes objects that could be repurposed into weapons. And so that list included things like solar generators, some basic components to doing things. However, they are now rejecting items that are not on that list. So what we've seen are trucks that have been carrying items like tents, sleeping bags, and generators, which are essential items for people to survive in harsh winter conditions, which is what we are facing now, They've been forced to turn back because some parts like the metal tent poles, it's argued that they could be used for weapons. Even like the metal zippers on zipper bags have been sent back. And so each time there are items that are disqualified or rejected, that truck is then sent back to the back of the line and then has to go through the whole thing again. This list of things that are rejected is not consistent, right? I mean, these things can be applied arbitrarily. They're constantly changing. There's not a great system for it. So you have people in line for days because it's not getting the normal throughput, then being rejected and having to start all over. So then when a truck finally gets inside the distribution process also faces huge obstacles, right? So there is no deconfliction process in this conflict. And, And normally in situations like this, we have these mechanisms that humanitarian organizations rely on to make sure that we can safely deliver aid. Those don't exist. They are non-existent or totally not functioning in this environment. So even once a truck finally gets inside, there are no consistent places where we can tell people to go to get regular distributions. You have so many people that are trapped in the small area just near this Rocka border that a lot of trucks are being mobbed and it creates its own safety hazards in and of themselves. So this is going into the South access to the North has been particularly impeded since the beginning of the ground and military operations. There were reports that in the first two weeks of January, only 24% of planned missions to deliver food, medicine, water reached their destinations North of Wadi, Gaza. So this complete lack of access to aid in the North has left tens of thousands of people trapped in between death. And then in the South, you have this situation where even when trucks get in, you know, the aid organizations have to figure out ways to safely deploy that and to get those supplies through in ways that don't create unsafe situations. And this is while all of our employees are facing bombardment themselves at huge personal risk. So this is quite difficult. The other thing that makes this difficult for us is the items that we're bringing in have to be things that don't require clean water, or you may have a whole plan built on something, but once someone turns back a generator, some of those things aren't workable.
1: What's a good example of of that that you've had to deal with?
0: So... If someone doesn't have a generator or access to power, perhaps they might not have a way to use a water purification system, or they may not have a way to cook like a basic rice or grain thing. And so like if you think about someone with no fuel, no water, the types of food products that you're delivering are very limited. And some things that are less bulkier that you could get more for the volume and in terms of grains that can be cooked and other things, you're delivering them to people that can't use them.
1: There's a lot to, to unpack from your answer just now. The first is like the seemingly capricious nature of the inspection regime. You said that like tents would be rejected because they contain tent poles. The whole truck would be pushed to the back of the line. And that's actually an anecdote I saw shared by Senator Chris Van Holland of yes. Maryland, who's like a very normy democrat. Yes. Not someone who's known to be particularly left-winger or anything like that and he was seemingly apoplectic about the nature of these inspections when he visited the border earlier this month and it just seems to exacerbate an already dire situation, which you've described. You also mentioned that the situation in northern Gaza was particularly acute. This is seemingly the worst of the worst for the fact that it is so far from the ports of entry where limited aid is getting through in in the south. Now, I've seen in recent days, there is a renewed push to open up a crossing controlled by Israel and use a port called Ashdod, which is only really a few miles from uh, northern Gaza. What is the sort of likelihood you think that that port will be used to get humanitarian goods into northern Gaza? And will it make any difference?
0: Unfortunately, the story of this conflict has been fits and starts or or hopes of things opening up, then it taking much longer than, than you would imagine for that to happen if it happens at all. And then these other bureaucratic hurdles on top of it. So we're working hard on every angle, obviously would welcome a port or other things opening. And at the same time, you know, without any real knowledge of when that might happen, what may be allowed, you know, we're operating under status quo and doing a lot of contingency planning for something that may or may not happen. I think that's been one of the most frustrating things about this conflict. I mean, obviously the people in Gaza are suffering at the worst, but it has felt like being on a treadmill to nowhere in terms of constantly grinding and grinding and looking at different alternatives to things and still not being able to do the work that we're meant to be doing.
1: So can you describe what work is Mercy Corps able to do in Gaza right now? What were your programs like before October 7th? And are you able to run any programs, any interventions at the moment?
0: So before October 7th, a lot of our Programming was really around, a lot of it was around economic development. So we've worked in Palestine for three decades, since 1986, providing humanitarian assistance like access to water and cash assistance, working with children and young people and connecting people to economic opportunities because in an environment where unemployment is over 40%. So we've supported hundreds of families through livelihood support in the agriculture sector. We provide cash to families to purchase things like irrigation systems and greenhouses so that they can restore their farming activities. We've provided access to safe and clean drinking water by constructing two water desalinization plants and water distribution networks. And we do a lot of work with young people to increase their access to skills and employment opportunities. One of the things that we're known for is a program called Gaza Sky Geeks that we launched in 2011 in cooperation with Google.org. And Gaza Sky Geeks is a tech hub that trains, nurtures and supports emerging tech talent with the goal of creating a sustainable and inclusive digital job market in Palestine. So we've reached over 23,000 people and Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank alone through that. Gaza Sky Geeks has also turned into a leading co-working space and startup accelerator. So there have been great work that we've been able to do there over the years and that we're really anxious to continue. In terms of what we are doing now, so we are establishing supply lines to get goods in and working with other organizations, particularly local organizations on the ground, on the distribution of those and also looking at alternative ways to get those things in and out. The other thing we've been able to do, too, to some limited degree, is there's some youth programming that we were able to do or some things around violence, prevention, or conversations. And in in limited areas, we've been able to continue some of that work.
1: Does the Gaza Sky Geeks co-working space still exist?
0: It was one of the first buildings damaged during the first round of bombing. So it is still standing. I don't know how usable it is at this moment or how safe it is.
1: What are you hearing from your staff inside Gaza right now? Presumably they've been dislocated like most of the population at this point. like, Are you able to stay in in pretty close communication with them?
0: We have. Since the beginning, we've had different phone trees and checkpoints. And we've always been able to get to the vast majority of our staff. They're always about around 10 people that that we haven't been able to reach or that have gone silent for long periods of time and that have come back online. We actually have been collecting anecdotes from the staff. We communicate a lot over channels like WhatsApp, but you know, I had one staff member that talked about the way that her child is being affected by the bombing and how like they've gotten really anxious. The child clings to her a lot and is just really worried. And at some point you run out of things to say to a child. Another team member reported that everyone in their family has either skin irritation or infections and no way to treat them. And they're just hoping that it doesn't get worse. You have stories of people rationing water and trying to make the little they have work across large families. There's a lot of intergenerational movement together and large families and people trying to stay safe in big groups. And so we hear about staff members' concerns about specific members of those groups, like people who are pregnant or someone who may be elderly requiring medicine and just worried for their safety and their ability to continue to endure this.
1: So obviously, you know, a ceasefire of sufficient duration to allow aid to besieged parts of Gaza would be a way to, you know, reduce the likelihood of famine in the near future, but unfortunately it doesn't really seem like such a ceasefire is in the offing. Absent a ceasefire, is there anything else that might reduce the prospect of famine and just at least on the margins alleviate some of the humanitarian crisis and suffering that we're seeing
0: yeah you know, we're, we're in this unprecedented situation where virtually every resident of gaza so so two million people are in need of assistance, right? And so when you're talking about operating at that scale, the ceasefire is a bit of the minimum just so that you can have a safe space to deliver assistance and for people to come get it safely and that you can actually do your work over a period of time because people are needing that. But in addition to that, other things that we are calling for are Just a restoration of basic services. So Israel resuming the flow of electricity and water to Gaza, like fuel has to be allowed in as an essential humanitarian commodity to power hospitals and water pumping stations, not just aid trucks. And damaged infrastructure like these water desalination plants and pumping stations have to be prepared. In addition, we need additional border crossings and the improvement of inspection mechanisms, including adding more inspectors to process aid convoys faster. News of one additional border crossing or a potential port, all of that is welcome, but we need more crossing. We also need the restoration of commercial supply lines to markets. Like I said, all these things have been shut off. It's not just aid, it's just a normal commercial supply. So bakeries need flour cooking oil is needed for shops. They need all that with the restoration of the water and electricity because aid alone cannot sustain 2 million people. We also still have a situation where we must get safety guarantees and access in and out for our staff to support our teams in Gaza doing this work. There's a certain number of people from the outside you need to bring in to account for your staff who are Completely depleted, who may be concerned for their own family safety and who just can't show up at work 100%. There's also that additional support needed to monitor the distribution and to make sure that all protocols are being followed. And there's just no capacity to do that at this point. So the ceasefire for a period of time is absolutely critical, but it's just, it's not the only thing at that point. And Israel today could start doing things like resuming basic water and electricity flow and other things that could help the situation a bit.
1: Is there anything else you wanted to mention, like a question I didn't ask or a point you wanted to make?
0: Israel today ordered new evacuation directive towards Khan Yunus, which is an area where a lot of internally displaced people have been pushed towards. So that would affect 88,000 residents and 425,000 internally displaced persons as well as numerous hospitals and clinics, there just simply is nowhere for people to go. They keep getting pushed into smaller and smaller areas that then they're told to push out of those soon after. And that's just not a way to live, You know, especially for people who are already depleted. The other thing is many of our aid organizations are also really, Worried and thinking about populations in the West Bank that are undergoing a lot of settler violence, we also are in places like Lebanon and Yemen and other places where there there has been bombing or other skirmishes from Hamas-aligned organizations. And so, really looking to try to support populations in those places while also trying to work with all parties to figure out a way to keep the broader population safe. So this is, I think everyone around the world is working so that this does not spiral into a deeper crisis, but it is a regional crisis for a lot of people. And especially there was some evidence that came out this week around how the Egypt economy is suffering, how the Gaza economy is suffering. And so we need to be there to support those populations as well.
1: Jada, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.